You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I got to tell you something, people. Uh, my guest today is on a show that me and Joanne really love. And it's funny, we started watching it last year because the previews, the previews were so cool. But then I had Brooke Smith on, who was on last year, when she was actually quarantining in Vancouver. So she hadn't been on set. She just was sitting there in a house for like two weeks. And what we like about it is the story, the story is just great. And, and you don't, it's not too intense, but it's got its violence. And, and the characters are a little bit offbeat. And when this season started, the second season a few weeks ago, we're like, I don't know if they can keep the pitch up. And they have. And I actually think the characters are a little more crazy this year. And my guest is one of the stars of it. My guest is Dee Dee Pfeiffer. How you doing, Dee Dee? I'm doing great. How are you, Cooper? <laughs> now, what did you like prefer? Did you like prefer shooting in Vancouver or New Mexico? Well, you know, that's actually a great question. Well, I get asked that a lot, actually. Um, well, it's different because when we were in Vancouver last year, we were seriously quarantined. Everything was, for the most part, shut down and just starting to open. And we were kind of like PTSD, like we didn't really want to go out. We didn't, we didn't. Um, no one was vaccinated at that point. It was still really heavy in the pandemic. So like Brooke was talking to you last season, we were very uh, isolated last year. This year in New Mexico, we're vaccinated. There's actually mandatory vaccinations going on now as we speak on the set and the A-bubble, which are people who have to touch each other. <laughs> and um, so we can go out. And also it's um, it's New Mexico, so it's real like open and wide so there's a little more freedom so it's just different because i personally love canada i may ha i fed a lot of canadian uh birds on my balcony last year for anyone who followed me they know because like brooke i was going back crazy <laughs> yeah i'm thinking you know you get up there and and now in one part you have to learn your lines but you know the one thing about you know acting, and I've been on sets, is the camaraderie. You know, and but when you sit there and you go up and they're like stay in a room for two weeks, it must, for me, it would take a little bit of the excitement out of getting on a new project. Uh, oh well, yeah, it's different. I'm sure Brooke probably broke it down to you last season. We have bubble A, B, and C. And none of the bubbles really are supposed to interact so that if someone gets it in, in any one of the bubbles, then you contact Trace and only pluck out those people. So the whole production doesn't have to shut down, right? Because that can kill a series if we can't continue weekly filming. But, but going back to what you were saying, what's really great about making movies or TV is the camaraderie and getting together and getting to know each other and going out. And, well, they would drink, but I'm sober now. But back in the day, oh, I had lots of drinks there. <laughs> but now I go have lots of coffee, or I used to. But the thing is, is that now it's, uh, like you said, it's very disjointed. Um, we're very less likely to do any of that. So you sometimes meet the actor right on the set versus that pre-introduction that normally actors do and the crew. Um, like I used to love going and having a beer with the crew. Favorite thing to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. Actors are okay. But the crew is where it's at. They're like the best. And now, I mean, afterwards, we're asked, the minute you're done, leave. Like, no loitering. Sorry, peace out. Go back to wherever you're staying. Yeah. I, I think the one upside would be, though, is because the times I've been on set, I would always hit crafty. Like, you wouldn't want to hit crafty, but you'd be sitting there, <laughs> and you're bored, and you go, I'm going to go get a donut. Or I'm going to go, I'm going to go, now, do they, do they, like, how do they control crafty now? What do they do? Is it, like, is it a portioned, or what? 
Yeah, that changed too. Last year in Canada, Crafty, every little, every single thing that we got was kind of like on a table and it was, um, uh, well, well, yeah, kind of pre-wrapped. And back in the day, you would go to craft service and you just kind of nosh and you graze, like, you know, you just graze up and down the table and those days are over. You literally are behind like a table there on the other side with all the goodies and you point and you say, I want some M&Ms. May I please have a coffee with some cream? And then they hand it to you without touching you. They put it down and then you get it. Um, everything's prepackaged. Yeah, the days of like making stuff, homemade food, which a lot of craft service used to do, though, ah, it's over now. They, they can't um, afford it. So it is different, you know, and um, and also I can't make a big of myself. I'm too embarrassed to say, can I have some peanut m and Can I have a Hershey Park? Can you grab me a donut? And while you're at it, throw in some jalapeno kettle chips, and I'll chase it with a Coke. I go up there, and I'm like, I'll have a coffee and M&M's. And then I, I walk like, like, oh, that's not what I wanted, but I didn't want to come off like a... <laughs> I, used to, I used to always take those Harvest Nature granola bars and put them in my backpack, and I get home... My wife would be like, "Oh my God, what are you? What are you doing? Are you a kleptomaniac?" At Crafty, I would literally go up and, like I said, grace, throw a bunch of stuff in the bag, and go home. And I'd eat for a week just off the what I what I got from Crafty. Now, when you know you've been acting, and then you left acting, I want to talk about that. But what got you into acting? You know, I know you grew up in SoCal, I believe. So, what was was acting in your blood, or how did it how did it start for you? Um, it was not in my blood. I'm painfully shy, actually, which is kind of shocking to say, why did you become an actor? I'm still asking myself that question. <laughs> my parents used to call me a hardhead. <laughs> God dang it, Dee, you hardhead. And now I can understand why. I just got to keep doing things. I'm not quite sure why. But um, I know that as a kid, um, always was passionate about animals. And in high school, I started becoming really interested in human behavior and, like, why people do what they do. Never understood human beings to this day. I'm still trying to figure it out after a 10-year degree, two degrees in um, Bachelor's of Psych and a Master's of Social Work. Still trying to figure out how and why people work the way they do. Animals were always so much more easy. So by the time I was 18, my sister, Shell, was doing Scarface. So she had had, she'd done some stuff, and I had already worked... I don't know how many odd jobs since I was like, you know, 10 or 12 years old, whatever. Um, back then, we didn't have child labor. <laughs> if you could work, you work for $5 a week. And, you know, I was riding my little bicycle or whatever to wherever I was just to make a couple bucks. So by the time I was 18, I didn't know what I wanted to do. High school or college was never even like an option in my family. No one went to college in my family. It was like you, you graduated, you, went to, you got a job, period. My dad's a blue-collar worker, so that's that's all he really cared about was just get a job. So um, I worked at a female oil, mud and oil red clean place as an illegal cocktail waitress, and as a, I dropped off and picked up radiators at a radiator company, um, danced in the Disneyland parade, worked at Julie's. St- I had thousands of jobs. So by the time I was eighteen, I was like, "What the heck am I supposed to do?" So I said to my sister, "Hey, I think I want to try this thing called acting." And she was like, hey, stop right there. Don't even think about headshots. Don't even think about getting an agent. Get your butt into a, a really good acting workshop. And then see if this is something you really want to do. So I went, I drove up to L.A. with my little Volkswagen and my monkey, my stuffed monkey. And I lived on my sister's um, couch in her office, you know, when I first got up there. 
And um, so I'm putting myself through very expensive acting workshop classes, Peggy Fury at the time. And, oh, my God, I was bad. I did not know what I was doing. I was shy. I would always forget my lines. I would stutter. I had no idea what character development, you know, was about. And I know that <laughs> the teachers were like, what is this girl doing? Why is she here? Just because her sister's Michelle Pfeiffer doing Scarface doesn't mean that she should be acting. Um, but I kept trying it and would give up because I just kind of figured I wanted to master it before I moved on. And now I'm 57, and I still haven't mastered it. Took a 10-year beat, but came back. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's a good attitude when you say you haven't mastered it. And, I, and I've talked to a lot of people who have acted for years, and they always say, you know, we're learning every day. You know, I've talked to actors who say, you know, even now, they go, they're, they'll, they'll be the star of a show, and they'll be like, we still sit on that, well, before COVID, we still sit on the set just because we learn. And I think that's like anything. I mean, you're like my 900th interview, but I learn every time because everyone's different and every set's different and then and it's good that you notice that because so many people they'll do one thing and they think oh i'm, I'm the best in the world and you're like well, you're not that good yeah yeah you gotta um be careful of what my sponsor used to always tell me get get out of your own way <laughs> get out of your own way and the minute you start drinking your own lemonade you're in trouble um because here's how i view it the world is always ever changing whether you like it or not, the world is constantly changing. So as an artist, any kind of artist, if you don't continue learning and looking at life with through the lens of curiosity versus resistance, right, then you're going to be left behind. And you're going to be a little angry. You're going to be a little resentful because the world continuously changes. So, um, you know, I might nail one performance, but that's it. That was one performance in one time in my life, and now the next one's coming, and I gotta like start all over again. Come up, I have two boys. I'm a single mom, same dad. But I promise you, when the second one came out, I was like, "Oh, I got this. I've already raised one. He's three years old. I got it." My second son came out, and he was so different. And he let me know immediately he was nothing like my first one. I had to learn how to be a parent all over again because he was not Braxton. That's my first son. He was Maximus. And Max was going to let me know that whatever I worked, whatever worked with Braxton was not going to work with him, you know? And that's kind of how I think life is. You have to constantly be, um... Well, now, early in your career, was being Michelle Pfeiffer's sister a help or a hindrance or a little bit of both? Oh, in the beginning, it was the worst. I started, I graduated in 1982. And yes, the dinosaurs were pretty much still, you know, walking around. There was no cell phones. On the same year, on the same year. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. And, um, oh, sorry, that's not me breathing heavy. It's my dog. Honey, can you, you mind? Yeah, you can go in the room and breathe. Thank you. <laughs> She's a Rottweiler. She breathes really heavy. Um, so, um, oh my gosh, my breathing Rottweiler, what was I saying? About a hindrance or a help in early career with, with well, Michelle. Yeah, back then, they told me straight up when I, when I finally studied for two years, I thought I was ready to go out and start auditioning. And when I, found, and I got an agent, the first thing they said was, you got to change your last name. You know, you, if you want to be taken seriously, you cannot be a sibling if somebody's already established. That's how it was back then. And, and if you were a serious actor, you did film. And if you were just like a, all the other actors did TV, you know, it would, think about that. That was an era where, like, if you were serious, you didn't do TV. 
And now a lot of actors, you know, with Oscars would give their left, you know what, to be on a TV series because they're pretty nice, cushy jobs if you can get a good one, right, on a good show. Um, so it, in the beginning, they told me to change my name. I said no. <laughs> um, again, Dieter Do, the hardhead. I said no, that's my dad's, my family's name. and People are going to have to get over it. Um, so there was constant comparison, and I think there still is for sure. Um, so that was hard, not for me because she's my sister, we're best friends. And so is my other sister, Lori, and my brother, Rick. We're really tight. It was more about other people getting over the idea that I'm not like her. You know what I mean? They kept being disappointed because <laughs> it's like, well, she's nothing like Michelle. It's like, that's right. If you want Michelle, you're going to have to go hire her or go hire an actress that's more like her. That ain't me, you know? So they, there was a lot of hoops to jump through. First, I had to walk in the room and kind of see the disappointment. Like, ah, she's nothing. I thought we were going to get the younger, cheaper version of Michelle. <laughs> I was like, nope, that ain't going to happen. And now I got to talk you into whether I'm right for this role, right? So there were some hoops. There were some hurdles. I still think there probably are some. But at 57, I'm feeling a heck of a lot more secure now than I did when I was younger. Now, what was your, with the early part of your career, though? What, what were some of the uh, parts you were getting? What were you getting called out for? Like, what were you auditioning for? Because, you know, were you, I know you have, I see on your IMDb, you have some sitcoms, you have some other stuff. Were, were you considering yourself a jack of all trades? Um, you know, for a minute, I really did try to, to pull that shit that, oh, I've been a serious actor and I want to be to do films because, you know, I even said that to my agent and they were like, are you out of your mind? No. So I, got humbled real fast and realized, well, you're starving, you're not eating, and guess what? You're not getting any films, so you better stop being stupid and stop drinking your own lemonade. <laughs> Start going out for TV, and I found a nice home on TV. I literally would read for anything, you know, and I would do it. That's it. I mean, all the acting coaches that I have were like, there's no such thing as a small role. There's no such thing as a small production, you know. Um, it's small if you make it small and you use the lens that it's, it's insignificant or whatever. But I never looked at it that way. There's no such thing. And that's why I was able to take a small roll in size. It was small. Falling down. Great example of, of a – I didn't have a lot of screen time. But, man, that little character that I got, she popped, right? She popped. Yeah, she that, a big film, right? And that's, that's the kind of stuff people remember. It's funny because I know you also did Seinfeld. And I just said Yul Vasquez on, and he played the real, the bully gay guy in three episodes. And he said, once he did that show, people really recognized him. Did Seinfeld get you a little more juice going because it was such a big show? And um, uh, well, it, In my career, yes. Because back then, when you got, when you scored a Seinfeld, that was like... <laughs> That was like getting a baby Oscar or an Emmy or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, score. That was huge to get on that show. Um, I didn't even realize the magnitude of getting that role at the time I did it. Until, like, years later, probably now, that people go, you have any idea how awesome that is that you were on, not only Seinfeld, but that episode? And I have to go, oh, yeah, you're right. That is kind of cool, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't, I wasn't even, I'm so in the moment that I was, didn't even think about the magnitude of it, right? Um, but... Yeah, I, I, to this day, I still look at my career and go, oh, my God, I've been busy. Wow, I, I, I rarely stop to reflect, you know, always looking for that next gig at that time. You know, always looking for the next gig. 
Well, you were working a lot, and then you ended up on Sybil, which I guess was, you know, a series regular. I mean, as an actor, that must be great, because especially back then, it's in L.A. That was, actually, Seinfeld didn't make it so I was recognizable on the streets. Probably because I didn't really look like that in real life. <laughs> I'm like a pretty funky dresser, and you know, I'm, I run around looking kind of crazy. <laughs> but um, uh, I think it was Seinfeld, or sorry, uh, Sybil, I think is what kind of made it where people start going, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know her. I always thought, you look familiar. Did I go to school with you? Or you look familiar. Did I used to, um, I used to be my neighbor? Like, I could see people, or they'd just say it. You are really familiar. I can't picture it. I can't figure it out. I was one of those actors, and you were like, and then I'd walk away, and then you'd go, oh, I know where I know her from, right? And meanwhile, I'm gone. Um, but... Sybil was the one where I, they were like, oh, wait a minute, that's that actor on Sybil, right? They kind of were able to put it together. I would say that would be the, the show that kind of did that for me. Now, how, how did your life change when you got that show? Because you know it's a paycheck. You know it's, it's work. And as you say, you know, actors, and people don't understand this when I tell people, actors, you know, they can be on a series and they cannot act for two years. So it's not like, you know, unless something's... But for you, what was it like when you were, you were doing different parts... But all of a sudden, did you feel like you had a home? Did it make you feel comfortable going to that set every day? Um, yes, while you're doing it. But then there was always that dreaded waiting for it to become, uh, did you get the next season? Did you get picked up? It's called the pickup. Did you get the pickup? Because just because you're on a show that's successful or really good does not mean you're going to get your pickup. There's a lot of reasons why shows get yanked, right? And then you don't see them again. You're like, hey, wait a minute. I like that show and it's gone. You know, <laughs> where'd that show go? So to have longevity, as you know, there's not a lot that actually can say they have a long haul. So that home is kind of an insecure home. You don't know when mommy and daddy are going to divorce. You know, it's that kind of a feeling. So until you got that pickup, did you feel really safe? And I'm going through that right now in Big Sky. We just started our second season, and I'm already stressing, are we going to get the third season? And they're like, Dee, what are you doing? We're only three on the air. Second <laughs> season, chillax. I'm like, yeah, but well, you don't understand. I'm 57. I don't know if I'll ever work again. <laughs> they're like, oh, my God. Talk about future tripping, girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope, I hope it gets picked up, because as I say, I always hate you know, <laughs> when you watch a show, and, and they don't know if it's going to get picked up. And then it just ends. And if I don't find out, you know, what's going on with the twin brothers, you know, I mean, I'm going to be like, wait a second. We got to find out, you know, what's going on with the drugs. People, I'm not, this is no spoiler alert. There's a bunch of drugs in this season. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, there's, there's but, no spoiler there. But that always, that always irritates me. But now, now after Sybil, you're also on a show called For Your Love. For Your Love, yeah. And I that, felt a little bit more homey there Sybil was so new. I was like, literally, it was like brand new, you know. Um, to a series regular. By the time I got For Your Love, I had been a series regular. So I kind of, it wasn't all completely scary. Still scary, but not completely like, what am I doing? I have imposter syndrome. <laughs> I always think they, they accidentally cast me because they meant to call the other actress, but my, my and her number were close to digits and they went one digit off and accidentally hired me. And then we're going to discover soon that, oh, we didn't want her. We wanted uh, you know, Drew Barrymore or whatever the other ones who used to sneak parts from me all the time. Patricia Arquette, those were all the ones I run around with. Um, yeah. <laughs> But um, I think For Your Love felt really homey. Again, you go through those tummy aches when you were waiting for the pickup. 
um, always got the stomach aches to see because the bottom line is uh, if you don't get your pickup, that's it. You finish up the show and then you're unemployed again and you're off walking the pavement, you know, trying to find the next gig. Now, now, are there some roles that you went out for that you look back and you went, man, I wish I had gotten that? <laughs> well, yes and no. The reason why I say yes or no is yes, of course, there's always those roles where you know you nailed it and the director loved you and everyone loved you. And then um, the other actor comes in and they nail it more and then they get it and you're like oh why couldn't she have had a cold or, not, or get a flat tire on the way to the interview I would have had it right it's like it's that close but then I think about it had I gotten any one of those awesome roles the trajectory of my life would be different and I wouldn't be sitting here with you I wouldn't have my two boys right and I wouldn't be on Big Sky it would have literally my path would have been different um, had I gotten, say, Jerry McGuire, or, you know, I don't know, Gia, <laughs> I don't know, the Nancy story, Sid and Nancy. Yeah, there were some in there that they, I didn't get them, and it, it hurt, it hurt, because I got really close, and they were great roles. And the actresses who got them, I'm sorry, they were better than me, I'm sorry. They, I'd like to say that, oh, I would have done better, but they, they tore it up, all of them, you know, um, Angela Jolie, Patricia Arquette, and... Uh, uh, Renee Zeller, these are fantastic actors. I mean, if they're gonna, if you're gonna get beat out, you want to get beat out by those gals, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I was producing, I would have cast them too. I wouldn't have cast me over them. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> no, I mean, come on. I have actually produced and I've been in those positions where you're like, oh, God, there's a lot of people who are really good for this role, but I only want to get it, right? Now, after Four Year Love, you, you kept acting, you, you worked a lot. But, you know, eventually, what made you get out of acting? So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about, you know, I know sobriety, you got sober, and then you went to school, and you got completely out of the business, which is hard for a lot of times for people, not if, because you, you had had success. It's not like someone who goes, I'm doing background my whole life, you know, I'm, I'm going to get a job. But so what, what was your, what made you get out of the business? What, is it just the drag of getting up and have to try to do it every day? Um, no, no, no. I mean, if you're fortunate, you get to do it every day. And remember, less than 1% of actors are working or employed at any one time. That makes 99.9 .9 either in between jobs or walking the pavement trying to get a gig, right? Um, I think it, it, this was like 13 years ago, and I hit a point in my career where the gals I was hiring to help me um, babysit my boys <laughs> were making more money than I was. Because all I was getting were these small independent films, which, by the way, I love small independent films. Don't get me wrong. I love them. They're like the best because it's an actor's playground, right? It's a, it's a director's playground. It's a writer's playground. It's, it's, it's super fun. Problem is you can't support two boys on that. I also was looking around the world, and I was getting a little frustrated with the fact that at that time, you know, I saw a lot of male actors who were graying and getting all chubby and wrinkly, and they were considered sexy and still working. And God forbid us got a little chubby and wrinkly and start losing our hair. We were unemployed even more than you were before, you know. So I was like, that is so unfair. So I remember thinking, I'm raising two boys. What, what is the same? You know, what, what am I doing? And I felt so loyal to an industry that wasn't loyal back to me, number one. Number two, I saw a lot of social welfare issues going around the world, all over the place, that were so wrong and unjust that just volunteering wasn't enough. And I thought, maybe this is a good time to take a break, you know, put a permanent pause on that, and go to school. Honestly, I literally thought I'd go, eh, it took me a year or two 
to get those things called a master's. Not a clue what I was doing. Not, I walked up to a community college and said, hey, I want to help people. I want a degree. And they're like, hey, what degree do you want to go? I don't know. You tell me. And they're like, that's not the way it works, ma'am. You need to tell us. I go, I don't know. I just want to help people. <laughs> and they go, how about a psych degree? I said, okay, cool. And that's how it started. And then, of course, they tested me, and I was less than a fifth grader. I mean, I didn't even know how to turn a computer on, um, let alone a thesis. Thing. What? I, I math, two, two plus X equals nine. Why is there an X in there? That's a typo, right? No, ma'am, it's called algebra, huh? Oh, boy. So I had years of prerequisites before I even got to the, my first degree. Also, learning disabilities were discovered along the way that I was told I was stupid in school my whole life. Come to find out I wasn't stupid. I was just, I was dyslexic. I have a processing issue. And once identified and I received um, extra help, I started getting A's. No. A's. Yeah. And that's the, how my academic journey started. It was very hard. And two boys would go. <laughs> with, with, with the dyslexia, did you encounter that when you had to learn lines and look at scripts? Did you know, I mean, at, earlier when you had to memorize, I mean, because acting, you have to memorize lines, you have to have the stuff. Was it hard for you? And did sometimes you just get frustrated because you're thinking, wait a second, this, everyone else is doing this so easily. Why is it such a pain in the ass to me? Oh my God. Yeah. I'm learning lines, monologues used to make me just, I stomach aches for hours when I see a monologue. Um, if I had a big word in a sentence, I would go into cardiac arrest, <laughs> you know, um, um, anything that if the lines didn't make sense. So I, like you said, I would spend hours and hours and I would write my lines really big. I'd write them in colors. I would take a big word and chop it up into little pieces and do phonetics and draw pictures and put it on the bathroom mirror or in my refrigerator. I mean, this is the things I had to do to learn lines. And I still do actually was, was crazy. But my, it wasn't until I got to college, they said, you, you were literally creating like little skill sets for yourself to get it into your long-term memory because you're a visual learner, you're a kinetic learner. And once I was able, someone just told me what that was, it was not, nothing to do with being intelligent or smart and everything to do with the way I learned. And once we addressed that, oh my God, it became a lot, a lot easier, but still I know that takes me time. It takes me time. And I'm a huge advocate for anybody who who struggles to get assessed. Once you know what it is, they, they have things to help you out, make it a little easier, you know? Because there's nothing worse than feeling like you're stupid. There's nothing worse than you're less than everybody else. It's awful. And I thought it was just me because I was told I was stupid, you know, growing up. That, you know, I was in group three with Bobby who ate paste. Now I'm an advocate for Bobby who eats paste. Okay? Because I'm a social <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think they have paste at school anymore. I, don't, I think that's been outlawed. <laughs> yeah, now looking back, like, oh, my God. Poor guy was probably hungry. I mean, what the hell? Now I'm like, yeah, I'm analyzing Bobby back in the you know, 1960s. <laughs> Now, you'd, so you took your prerequisites, and you still, and because a master's takes a while, you get done the prerequisites, then you got to look at these psych guys, you said psych, so you took in psych classes, are you, is it fulfilling you, are you sitting there going, okay, this is really interesting, or did you have that goal of social work at the time? Uh, no, basically I was going to start, start on the um, trajectory of becoming a forensic psychologist. And then when I realized that a battery of what they did in the field was look at children who were sexually molested and then murdered, I realized that was not for me. I, I, there was no way. So I still continued on the psych. Well, in the beginning, a lot of my classes were just general classes. It had nothing to do with psych. You know what I mean? I would only take psych 
classes when I could, like psych one, because I had to, you know. So it wasn't until I hit my bachelor's that I actually got into psych classes. And then it was like, yeah, here we go. Here's the meat of why, you know, I'm like, why am I taking U.S. history? Why am I taking algebra? What does this have to do with anything? <laughs> you know, I did that for years. Um, but the psych classes were so interesting. Oh, my God, they were so interesting. I hated writing papers and all that because I just suck at it. But um, I just love the information. I love asking questions. I love challenging the systems, saying, well, you know, if this is working, then how come this, the stats look like this? You know, um, I realized quickly that I, that I definitely wanted to help people, but that not children because I was too much of a mama bear. Like I would be arrested in a minute if I went into a home and there was a child being abused. I realized that right away. I'm like, oh, I'd get arrested. I don't, that's not my area of concentration. So I ended up going towards um, mental health, substance use, and those experienced homelessness. That became my area of concentration with adults. And wow, I landed my home. And just for the record, I didn't get sober until I, after my first year of my two-year degree at UCLA getting my master's. I had gone through all my eight years before that, getting my AA and my BA, uh, carrying my disease on my back. Yeah, for sure. I, but I finally hit a wall and I went, oh, I can't do this. Took a year off to get sober, then went back and got my last year of my master's. Now, you took a year off to get sober and you hit a wall. But before that, you know, you were, it was the 80s. The 80s were a very different time. I went to college in the 80s. I it was a comic on the I road know. in the 80s. I know it was, it was, nothing was looked down on. Nothing was, there was no, you know, people really don't worry about it. Was, I mean, was the partying for you because you were on TV and you were in movies, was it a lot more accessible? I mean, when you were younger, was it easier for you to get sucked into that life just because, once again, when you're on a set, there's also a lot of downtime. When you're not, when your show's not shooting, if you're not auditioning, there's downtime. What do you think caused you at a young, if, I'm not sure what age you started, to really start partying hard? Um, I, when my trauma started catching up with me, you know, um, addiction often <laughs> dances with trauma, undiagnosed untreated trauma. They love each other. They dance really well. So, you know, cause you have two things going on. You have the trauma over here, you have the addiction over here. Often the addiction helps you run from the trauma, right? So if you deal with the addiction, not the trauma, you're going to relapse. Sorry, that's just the way it is, right? And the same thing, if you're dealing with trauma, not the addiction, well, you're not going to get to the root of the problem because you're in your disease, right? So for me, it was just, you're, if you think about it, it goes way back. I cut my father's an alcoholic, high-functioning alcoholic. So I would say I learned by from the best of them. I saw my dad, well, hmm, I want to say high-functioning alcoholic. So did I, uh, you know, drink while I was pregnant? No, of course not. While I was working as an actor? No. While I was at school? No. But that did not mean I didn't drink. It did not mean I didn't abuse alcohol. Um, but if you go before that, you know, there was a lot of different addictions. Food, you know, just it, it's whack-a-mole with addiction. So, and because growing up, like you said, with parents where addiction was never, it was, wasn't dealt with. My father, unfortunately, died in his disease. You know, I had a choice at a certain point to say, well, am I going to do the same? And I'm literally going to be asking my sons to, do, to follow my lead unless this stops and I can do it. Although I didn't know how, and I had, I had such shame, you know, that it was, that's what people don't really understand about people that have addictions is that we're riddled with shame. And, um, and I constantly felt like a failure because I couldn't stop. 
you know, I couldn't stop. I tried all the time. We always do. But I couldn't because I needed help and I didn't know how to ask for help. And that's why I'm so open about it right now. I want everyone out there to know you are not a weak person because you're asking for help. I, I think I'm a pretty strong woman. <laughs> but I couldn't kick that, my addict, in the butt. I couldn't get her. She, she's she's a conniving little rascal, my addict. She just she slithers around and, you know, gets away with shit. And she gets me in trouble, you know. So I had to ask for help, you know. Now, was there ever, did it, did it ever hurt your acting work when you did that? Was there anything or were you someone, because I talked to Gregory Harrison who had said, you know, when he had a bad cocaine problem, he talks very openly about how he would be up all night, he was going to direct a show, blocking a scene, and he would just not show up on the script. And finally he said, I was screwing up big time. Did, did it affect any, for you, any of your jobs when you were younger? I would say yes and no. Being a high-functioning um, alcoholic, I was able to sliver through the cracks. I was very conniving at making sure that it didn't. But there were times that it did, for sure. Waking up emotionally regular because you're hungover. So I wasn't 100% on an interview, right? Um, that certainly, I mean, looking back, I'm wondering just how many interviews I was off just enough and didn't get it because, you know, maybe I tied one on the night before. Generally speaking, I wouldn't. That didn't mean I didn't, you know? Um I think towards the end, for sure, um, I was uh, really struggling. Yeah. I mean, I'd show up to work just not looking right. I mean, I'd look in the mirror and go, oh, wow, you're just 10 miles of bad road. And there, and that just would make me want to drink even more after work because <laughs> it made me feel like shit. And I'm like, wow, you feel like shit? Let's just keep going, right? Um, or let's drink away the feeling of feeling like shit about yourself, which then just makes you more like shit, so now you're in a rabbit hole. <laughs> You know, and you can't say to somebody, help. That's the hardest part, is to say, I need help. When did you know you needed help? I mean, was there a defining moment that you said, okay, this is it? Or did you just say, I'm, or you just said to yourself, I'm going to go do it? Yeah, it's funny. Everyone usually has the bottom, right? Your bottom. I had, I always tell, every, I tell this in all my interviews, I had many bottoms. <laughs> um, each time I thought, this is it, I have to quit. Um, I just didn't know how. And it's almost like the universe came together at this, this last round. My, my mother had passed, and I just finished the first year of my master's, which was really intense. <laughs> and um, I'm older now. I've gone through three divorces. My sons are, you know, older. And all of a sudden, um, I'm just like, I just knew. like, And I started seeing on TV, 1-800- um, addiction. Call anonymously. We'll talk you through it. We'll show you how to get help. And I started to look at that. And I was like, I think I'm going to call and just tell them my name is Jill. I don't know how to do this. At that time, my family came to me and said, we'd like to do an intervention. And I just started crying. I said, you don't have to. Just tell me where to go. I'll be good. Just take care of my boys. And that's exactly what happened. No intervention happened. I just went, two days later, I was in a 30-day intensive inpatient program and then I did intensive six months out outpatient yeah with meth heads heroin addicts and you know alcoholics food addicts gambling addicts and let me tell you I love them all <laughs> we're all we were all in there just trying to live we were all just in there trying to figure it out we were all in there just trying to deal with uh, this place also dealt with trauma it was a trauma specialist and addiction specialist place called um life uh, breathe life healing center and um 
never have I ever felt less. Uh, I've always felt like an outsider, like the oddball out. In rehab, I found my home. <laughs> I found my peeps. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you have a story. They're like, hi, your story ain't nothing. Here's my story. And I'm like, oh my God, your story. Yeah, your story is nothing. Yours is worse than mine. And then I tell my story, they're like, no, I think yours is worse than mine. <laughs> and then, um, you know, you're, it's because it's not about that. It's not about the judginess of it. It's all about, wow, he's here, I'm here, and we're raw. We're raw human beings who um, are just trying to live, okay? So you got done that year, and then you went back to school. And, and I went back my last year sober. <laughs> right. And, and, now, and now when you got done and you got your master's, I mean, you know, you think about it if you're going for a job. You know, when some people go for a job, they go master's this, intern. You're, you know, they're going, well, master's this. Was on a hit TV series, acted in movies. <laughs> what was it? I mean, what was it like when you were trying to get interviews? They were like, wait a second, are you researching a part? Why are you calling? You know, what happened? Exactly. Like I said, I've always been the oddball out. Here we go. I'm in my last year of my internship. I'm in the last year of my master's. I'm doing my internship up at the Department of Mental Health, interning, and out of. And meanwhile, I knew in my master's I was going to blend together my fan base, my acting career somehow in with my degrees. I knew I was going to merge them together and help people on a larger scale. I just didn't know how that was going to work. I didn't know how that what that looked like, but I knew that I was much better on a larger scale having come from being an actor versus a one-on-one clinical. I knew that right away. I was like, ooh, my friends are really good at the one-on-one clinical. I suck at it, you know? So I, but there I was my last year, sober, even quit smoking cigarettes, which is even harder. And I'm going, how am I going to live and survive on a social worker's income raising two boys at $50,000 in Los Angeles? I had no idea how I was going to make that work. But I knew if I kept sober, I kept working on my trauma, kept working on the next indicated action, which is often me doing things that are really uncomfortable, leaning into it, stay sober, and continue on believing in my authentic truth, which is I always want to be part of the solution, not the problem, right? I want to shed light anywhere I can. Um, I just kept on that path, and then out of nowhere, I got a text from my brother-in-law, David. And he said, hey, are you still acting? I have a role for you in this thing. The show I'm doing called Big Sky. I almost dropped my phone. I didn't even David had my number. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. We're close. We're family. But, I mean, I'm a big family. You know? And I, I, I was speechless. I was like, uh. You know, and of course, the, resp- the response was Y-E-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S-S. And then I called my sister. I'm like, I'm from interning, shocked, going, I think David just offered me a role, and, he, and she goes, he did, honey. And I go, oh, my God. I was in shock. I'm still in shock. I'm in the second season, and I'm still in shock that my brother-in-law didn't know he threw me a lifeline at a time where I needed it most in my life. Now, Job saved, saved my life. Yeah. Now, you said you needed it the most in time in your life. Why did you need it right then? Because you seem like – because – of the money aspect? Because, I mean, I know you were starting a new career and you said oh. the money's not that great. Why did you, why was it a lifeline? Well, because once again, I was going to, this is me, Dee, Dee just diving in. I was going to be a social worker, but I hadn't really thought about, I'm really bad with numbers and with the money thing. And I didn't realize that the 50000 when you do taxes with two boys in LA, there was no way. Like, I can't, I couldn't even get an apartment, if you think about it, right? I was never going to climb out of that hole. And so financially, it absolutely helped me. 
but it also gave me that little piece of the puzzle I was looking for. How am I going to bridge together, right, my fan base, my followers, and get myself back in the industry somehow without acting, and then pull my degrees together and help people? Well, the show did that tenfold. It helped me with the, to be able to support my children right now, get out of my financial hole from being in school for 10 years. Oh, oh that was not, you know, that hurts. Um, but also, I now am in a position, right, to create some kind of, um, I don't want to talk about it, so I'm working on something. But let's just say working on some a show of a sort where I can reach people and help them with my not only my education, but my learning experience, my compassion, and my desire to want to be part of the solution in a world, I think, where, where I see a lot of people trying to be part of the solution, and I want to be part of that. And I want to entertain. I want to do it all. Well, now, I'm 57. I'm 57, and I'm doing it all. Well, you have to, and that's good. Now, what was it like? What was it like when you were getting back on set? Because you said it was a 10-year layoff. Now, given yeah, you it comes back to you. I do stand-up com. I did stand-up comedy in the late 80s, early 90s. I got out of the business. I occasionally do a show. I get nervous before I go on because like, well, I remember stuff. But then once you get that first laugh, you kick into gear. Was it like that for you for acting? I mean, because it's, and one also, you have to feel a little bit of pressure because it's, it's your brother-in-law, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's got to be a little pressure. <laughs> well, Brett, well, we, like I said, Dave and I never talk shop. We just never talk shop. So all of a sudden to be working for him, it's like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, we went from not talking shop at all to he's now my boss, you know, and it, to this day, I don't bring up the show. When I see him, we talk about fishing. And I say, hey, I turn my hair. Denise is red. You like it? He's like, yeah, looks great. Network really likes you. Denise, the, what you're doing with Denise, I go, oh, thank you. And then I just kind of like awkwardly don't say anything else. And I say, hey, so when are we going fishing again? I mean, I just don't even know how to have a conversation with the man when it comes to the business. Because it's just so strange to me and foreign. Um, I mean, my sister Shell and I would rarely talk business. We talk about the kids. We talk about, you know, aging in front of the camera. Um and hair color and things that are really important. <laughs> no, no, we do. We really talk about social welfare issues and stuff. Um, it was like riding a bicycle when you get back on, but it was it was very how do I say this? Different. A lot had changed in ten years. I came in thinking, oh well, I know everything, right? I've been doing this for I've been doing this forever. And a lot of these new, <laughs> new actors were like, uh, no, not anymore. You're wrong. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, no. That rule went out six years ago, or we haven't done that in eight. You know, I mean, so much had changed that I finally realized, kind of like in recovery, you don't know anything. <laughs> you need to stop pretending that you know everything. You know a lot, but you need to be a student, a really good student, and uh, listen to the industry now, which is now different um, with curiosity versus resistance. Because otherwise, I was constantly getting in my own way. You know, um, and so I'm learning. I'm learning all what's new about everything to do with the industry, really. And but at the end of the day, it's still uh, it's kind of like a multidisciplinary team, which I was on my internship, where you have a lot of different people who do who all do something really well, and they come together to help say someone experiencing homelessness or somebody, you know. In dire straits, you all come together with your expertise. To me, that's what the film is, right? You all come together, and everyone hopefully does their, their piece of the pie really well, and all the moving pieces come together. Um, so I am only a part of that as an actor. 
and that keeps that keeps me humble, you know, because I think being humble is really important. Well, you know, it's it's funny, and as I said, I do watch the show, and you're you're in the office. You know, the two other the two women are very alpha. You know, they're very. I mean, and it must be funny shooting it because. You can tell there's that underlying competition, and you know if, if you watch the show, people the two partners, one slept with the one's husband. It's a long story, but what is it like, like when you? I mean, it, you have to watch it. You can't explain it. Yeah, Hulu, man. If you haven't seen it, go exactly. to Hulu. But what is it like on set? Because you know, it's you're. It's like you're the keeper. Like you're. You're like you're like the the sane one. You know, you're like the one who, as for character, is you know because. They're all different, and then the new detective guy comes in, and he's quirky. What is it like on set when you're shooting with just? It's a rich group of characters, and they're all so different. I mean, on the show, what is is that just really fun for you, or is it challenging for you? Oh, I think it's a blast because, especially coming from the lens in which I'm using, I kind of uh, use a lot of me and Denise. And I, I think that Denise would love to have been a therapist or, and I think she missed the boat on having kids. So she pulls all that in to what she does there. So there's this um, amusement when she's looking at all of them doing what they're doing and the girls and that's someone kill this guy and then the guy gets killed. And, um, she sits back and she um, observes a lot. You know, gossip is Denise's currency. I love that when I read that about her. I thought, oh, my God, that's hysterical. Um, it's a really great set. Like you said, there's a lot of different moving pieces. I'm only in Doolin Hoy. That's it. I only, if, if you get to come into Doolin Hoy, I get to work with you. Otherwise, there's like all the client saucers. Last year, I didn't even meet any of them because they were always out on the farm killing or doing, doing whatever in the heck it was they were doing the first season, right? Except for the one daughter came into doing a point at the end, and I met her. And then I met one of the brothers on a plane ride home. <laughs> but otherwise, and, and then this year there's all these kids. I think I met one, and that was at the, the air bloom thing here in Albuquerque. I met her. Um, but so I've only worked with the girls. They're amazing. They're dynamic. They're powerful. They're very different. And then you throw in Jesse James Keitel. Throw her in there. You got Kylie, you got Catherine, you got Jesse, and then now we got um, Omar. He's playing Lindor. He's in there, and then the few people that walk in and I get to act with them. <laughs> no. um, I love it. I get excited when somebody comes into Dylan Hoy. Not only Dee Dee, but Denise. <laughs> now, now is is that office on a set or is that an actual office? Because I'm trying to think. Is is there a studio you shoot in New Mexico, or is, is it a lot of it on location? You know, we, we have a very funny story. When we first started uh, Big Sky, it was literally right before the pandemic. We were all here, and we were only doing pre-production, hair, hair tests, makeup tests, establishing what the characters looked like, meet and greet. You know, back in the day, we went to a restaurant. We all met each other, met the crew, shook hands, hugged, all this pre-COVID stuff. Not a week later, we had only one scene, not even a whole scene, filmed. I ran home to say to my boys, I'll be back. Because my idea was to fly back and forth from Albuquerque home, right? And they were like, well, come back real quick because we need to color your hair. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I flew home, and before I even landed, my friend was like, you need to buy toilet paper. There's this thing called a pandemic. And I was like, what are you talking about? You're so hyperbolic. You know, you're nuts. Well, she was right. And then not a day later, everything was shut down. Everyone was sent home. So we started in Albuquerque for a minute. For like a minute, 
we shut down like the whole world did. And we didn't know if we were going to come back. That was another scary time. And then we did this and, oh, we are coming back. But now we're going to Canada. So they had found Doolin Hoyt here in Albuquerque in a little town called Las Vegas. And it's an old, an old bank that they were going to turn into Doolin Hoyt. So they loved it so much, they recreated it in a warehouse in Canada. So when we came back to Albuquerque, <laughs> they recreated it again in another soundstage. So it started out as a real old thing. So that so Illinois has a little history. And we've been, I don't even know where we're going to be the third season. Maybe we'll be in Hawaii. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Now, now do, you, uh, do you somewhat um, mentor these younger, the, the the younger girls in the set, do they look for your advice because you've been in the business, or is it has that part of the business disappeared somewhat? I think uh, I'd like to think they look up to me, but um, I'm not sure if anyone really looks up to me. That if they do, I'm unaware of it um, because I don't do that. Well, I try not to do that whole pedal school thing. Usually, when it comes to social welfare issues and broken systems <laughs> policies. I get a little on my soapbox when it comes to acting. I know what I know, but I'm very humbled, like I said, because a lot of it's changed. And if anything, they're teaching me. Hopefully, I'm teaching them by example what it looks like to be graceful, to be appreciative of being employed in a time where, I said, where less than 1% of actors are working, or working during a pandemic. We have the ability to entertain in a time especially to our show, remember, was running during the pandemic when everyone's still in lockdown. And that was really nice to give people new material when everyone was really kind of done with Netflix and what have you. We came in and said, hey, how about this? So for me, I felt like that, I wasn't doing social work, you know, but I was part of a team to help entertain whoever could tune in to watch us to check out for an hour, you know, during a pandemic, which is not a bad thing. That's, you know, anytime we can check out for a minute, um, to get through that, and we still are really, you know. Um, I get to be part of that, so it's kind of like my social worker kind of. Now, how many seasons are already? Sh- I mean, how many episodes are already shot? Right now, we're only oh shot. Well, we only, we aired three, and right. tomorrow night we'll be airing the fourth one. Oh, we're going to be doing Instagram live. We're going to have a few of the, few of the cast members doing Instagram live right before we air. Um, so if this airs in, in time, um, we're going to be trying to do that. I think every week, just. Be goof, to be goofy before the show, like, and you can, um, I think, I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not electronically savvy, but I guess that you guys can type in questions, and then we answer them, and interact with the audience, it seems like a lot of fun, um, so we're three, oh, but in the can, ah, oh boy, uh, we're probably five, six, five, six, I think we're, well, we're doing five and six kinds of same, we're overlapping right now. Six. Now, is it getting crazier? Because it's already crazy. Is is it? It's... Yeah, we got. Yeah, we have a lot of movie pieces again. Okay. This season. I mean, that's why. We... That's why I love it because so much yeah. stuff's going on, and you're like, "What?" And, and then you look at a character like Take that way, right? Oh yeah. Like... And then the girl, the young girl, her her mother's boyfriend is such a dick. <laughs> like you just hate him when you see him, and we're like, and my wife's like, he's such a creep, and you're like. Uh, but it's great because you, the, the characters, you really pull that out of them. You know, it goes over top, which is what we need. We need entertainment, and that's what's great. Now, when the season ends, what will you do? Not worrying if it's getting picked up or not. Will you take time off and do social work, or will you just 
relax and hope it gets picked up again? Um, well, I, I, my son and I, I put the cockatoo in the background. My son put the cockatoo to sleep. It's her bedtime. <laughs> um, I'm here with my 15 year old and my 19 year old moved out when we came here. Our stuff's in storage. So we're kind of like nomads right now. We're renting here in New Mexico, but then when I go back, I got to figure out what we're going to do, <laughs> where we're going to live. And I have to figure that out first. I'm working on, like I said, a, um, um, it looks like I might be a part of a show that will talk about mental health and addiction. And I'm excited to say that I was asked to be the showrunner. Um, whether or not I host it is still up in the air, but I'm really excited that I'll be able to use my social work chops and my psych degree chops with that project to get people talking about it. Um, these issues that we still, you know, still need to uh, be comfortable talking about. As long as there's still social stigma in the air, it still makes it bumpy. So I'm going to be actively working on that when this ends and try to figure out where the son and I and the cockatoo and the Rottweiler and the cat are all going to live and then wait patiently with that tummy ache to see if we get that third season pick up and to see where we're filming the third season. Who knows? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, I know you're on Instagram, and because I, I, I followed you on Instagram, and I, I know you had a lizard in your house the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Diddy Pfeiffer official. That's me. I don't tweet or fi- uh, Facebook because I can barely do Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah my, my cat brought me a little gift. She does that. Um, brought me a lizard. Now, what's funny is we named the lizard um, Larry the Lizard or Fred. She already got the tail a long time ago. And I don't know what's up with this lizard. My son and I would catch him, and we bring him up the road. Like, okay, come on, Larry. you got to get out of, you know, the cat's straps. She keeps bringing Larry in. Now we think that she and Larry are having some love affair. My problem is I wake up next to Larry. I like Larry. I'm not in love with Larry. But I have to say, it's pretty a jarring. It's like, oh, not Larry again. <laughs> So I finally just blasted on my Instagram going, this is what Miss Pfeiffer wakes up to. Larry the Lizard and the Rottweiler attacking me, like just smacking my face. And she got skunked. The Rottweiler got skunked. Yeah, the other night. So she smells like, well, skunk. And then I got the lizard. And uh, yeah, there you go. And then I do a lot of interviews with the cockatoo on my shoulder. (laughs) People, people, go look up uh, DD on Instagram. If you haven't watched Big Sky, go watch the first season. And then start, you know, there's something called On Demand now, too, like ABC On Demand. So, you know, or you can do what we do is we DVR it and then we skip through all the commercials. So it makes it great. And so go watch it. It's a great show. It's just, it's, it's quirky. It's fun. Um, so, yeah, go check out DD. Check out Big Sky. Go to my website, uh, www.coopertalk.net. You can find over 875 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.